It's a great pleasure to come here uh, and talk to you at the St Cross Ethics Seminar. I've been here in Oxford for a few months now on study leave from Monash and I've had some time to work on a project uh, that I hadn't really spent a lot of time on since I was last here in 2008. And I think some of you just looking around the audience were at the talk I gave um, here in Oxford in 2008 on a similar topic, but I thought what I would do is tell you about some of my latest thoughts on this, this particular issue. So hopefully in the first few slides I'm not repeating things that people have already heard. Um, hopefully it's all new to all of you. So... Um, Okay, um, so this is meant to be part of a broader project and the idea of the project is to really try to provide the strongest ethical rationale possible for broad access to IVF. So access to IVF for um, you know, both, unmarried, um, both you know, unmarried couples, same-sex couples, uh, single people and so on. And, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of ethical rationales that one could give, but I want to give a different sort of rationale, which I think is perhaps a little deeper and a little stronger than the rationales that are currently available. Um, so the first few slides are really just a recap on things I had said in my last talk here, but even those people who came to my last talk here five years ago, I'm sure they would not necessarily remember what I had to say. So I'll just go over these um, points just to try to set the scene. Um, the kind of access that I'm interested in trying to justify is access to IVF and other forms of assisted reproduction in terms of negative liberty. Um, you might think some of these arguments would support a positive liberty claim for such access, but um, I haven't actually got into that. Um, I'm seeing these arguments or putting them to you as arguments, if you like, for negative liberty. So just the removal of constraints such as the laws that there were in Victoria for a long time that said if you were not married, you actually couldn't have access to IVF. It was illegal to have access to IVF. In Victoria, if you were a de facto couple from 1984 to 1997, and same-sex couples were only given access from 2008. So that's the kind of obstacle I'm interested in, but there'd be other obstacles as well that it's worth talking about. And um, just a quick point about the way I'm understanding genetic parenthood. I'm thinking of it in terms of causing another individual to exist with whom one has at least a 50% of an overlapping genotype. It might go up to 100% uh, if you wanted to create your clone. Um, and the kind of idea I want to put to you and I'm keen to persuade you of is that the strongest ethical rationale that there is for broad access to IVF is that it provides people with an opportunity to develop distinctively valuable forms of parental love. And that's what the argument really revolves around, uh, as far as I can see, is trying to persuade you that there is a type of valuable love that you can only access if you become a genetic parent. And so people who can't otherwise become a genetic parent, apart from using assisted reproduction, where there is a law against them having access to IVF, then they are actually prevented from having access to this distinctively valuable kind of parental love. Um, now, this is something I argued for previously, uh, as I mentioned before, and in this talk I want to try to build on some things I'd said there, which I'm going to continue to sketch a little bit further. But in this talk I'm keen to focus more on what's meant by distinctively valuable forms of love. And so I'm going to focus on those claims that are often made by people, certainly in the debates about IVF access in Victoria, where people say things like, well, you know, these same-sex couples who are clamouring to get access to assisted reproduction, why don't they just adopt a child? 
they'll be able to have all, from their point of view, all of the goods that they could have if they just adopt a child rather than become genetic, well, at least one of them becoming a genetic parent. So that's the kind of thing I want to focus on, and that's the sort of claim that I want to attack. Um, and I thought it was useful in my thinking about this anyway to consider some analogies with those sorts of values in friendship. So I'll be drawing on the value of friendship in different respects throughout the talk. Okay, um, some of my slides will have pictures. They're not all as text-heavy as this, but this is a particularly text-heavy one, so this is going to help to set the scene. Um, now, this concept of emotional liberty you might find rather foreign, and the way I uh, understand it is as someone who has the liberty to develop experience and expre uh, express like, ethically valuable um, types of emotions. And I'm thinking of Martha Nussbaum here, John Stuart Mill is another one, maybe more questionable, but you know, Nussbaum, when she puts her, um, her capabilities approach to well-being, she includes emotions, and she says being able to have attachments to things and people outside ourselves, to be capable of loving those who love and care for us, to grieve at their absence, in general to love, to grieve, to experience longing and gratitude and justified anger, and also not having one's emotional development blighted by fear and anxiety. So that would be familiar to some of you, I'm sure. John Stuart Mill, as I said, is a bit more questionable. Mill talked about a liberty of conscience, and also he talked about liberty of thought. And um, sometimes when he talked about people having a liberty of conscience in his essay on liberty, he also talked about being free to think and express unpopular ideas, free of feelings of perhaps condemnation from you know, other people towards those ideas. But it's questionable whether he had a similar sort of thing in mind as Nussbaum and I do. So um, here I wanted to say a little bit more about how this kind of rationale might work, but also about some targets of my argument. Uh, because, of course, as you can see in the quote there from Nussbaum, it's not as if emotional liberty refers only to love and still less to parental love. Um, and so this is why I'm saying this is an emotional liberty rationale. It's one sort of emotion, the freedom to be able to develop like parental love and valuable forms of parental love. And the kind of rationale that I'm um, here sketching runs uh, contrary to a lot of arguments in bioethics these days and one that's been put by Neil Levy um, here and also in his article with Minor Lots um, where they argue that the claim that the genetic link is valuable is actually pernicious. Also, Rob Sparrow, my colleague at Monash University in bioethics, uh, argues that the social relation of parenting that's marked by the provision of love and care is more important to the well-being of both parents and children than is any genetic relation and should carry most of the weight in establishing a parental relationship. Now, in, a previous, in that same previous talk that I have been referring to, I gave an example to illustrate this idea where I talked about the way and actually quoted from some adoptive parents who say that the love they come to feel for a child that they have adopted feels like it has a special value, to use their words, because it's something that is an achievement insofar as the child comes into the family as a stranger and they take some time to come to love the child and that when they do come to love the child it has a special value to them because it feels like an achievement. 
I could read you that quote again, I've just got it there, but that's part of the previous talk, but that's a general idea of it. Um, now, I'm not using the word special value because to call something special makes it sound as though it's better than something else, even though I think when you analyse it, it needn't entail that. I'm just talking about distinctive value and I'm not particularly concerned with whether these different types of valuable parental loves are better than others. I'm just saying that you can't actually reduce the value of one to the other. So I'll come to that. But before I do, um, I just wanted to also mention a point uh, that's often made in debates about access to assisted reproduction, which is uh, about the motives that people have for deciding to become parents. You know, clearly there's um, more focus on this when people um, are trying to get access to IVF and people say, talk about why it matters to them to become a parent, have access to that technology. Um, and, you know, in the, you know, again, in the bioethics literature, there's a lot of, um, sort of discussion about pretty morally dubious reasons that people might have for becoming a genetic parent, like, you know, wanting to continue the family line, um, wanting someone to look after them when they're old, and so on. I mean, amongst other reasons, too, you find uh, people saying, well, they want to be able to develop a loving relationship with a child um, that doesn't yet exist. So that reason is in there. But I just thought it was useful to make this point, perhaps just in passing, uh, that even if someone has what you might think of as morally dubious motives for deciding to become a parent, uh, I, you know, I'd like to argue that um, that needn't condemn the whole relationship or the decision to become a parent. Again, this is my first analogy with friendship. You know, what if um, someone... Uh, is you know deciding uh, perhaps a woman feels that she can only be attracted to tall men because she feels that they are a kind of protector to her and it's for admittedly sexist reasons that she admits we wouldn't necessarily think that then the relationship that she begins is therefore condemned just on account of that we might think well let's wait and see what the dynamic of that personal relationship is and whether or not there's a sexist dynamic to it there's a sense in which the value of personal relationships really have a bit of a life of their own that can perhaps transcend the sort of moral evaluation you might make of the motivation for starting them. And I think the same kind of point can be made about people who are starting a parental relationship as can be made about people starting a friendship. Okay, so uh, this is the last bit of the sketch of the previous talk. The kind of claim that I think this kind of like, emotional liberty rationale supports is a general principle that it's pro tanto wrong to deliberately place obstacles in the way of opportunities to develop such forms of parental love. As I said before, as when states prohibit same-sex couples from accessing IVF, or of course for that matter, same-sex couples or unmarried couples from accessing adoption. And now I've got um, a little quote there from the Infertility Treatment Act in Victoria of 1995, just so you can see, that was amended after 1997, that said, uh, persons who may undergo treatment procedures, first of all, a woman who undergoes a treatment procedure must be married and be living with her husband on a genuine domestic basis. And then they added in 1997, or she must be living with a man in a de facto relationship. So it's kind of surprising to read that as recently as 1997, recently for me anyway, that you had to be married to get access to IVF. And it was a criminal offence for an unmarried couple in Victoria to have access pre-1997. 
Um, and more recently, this particular legislation was changed to allow access to same-sex couples and single women. And there was a lot of debate about you know, whether that should happen. And a lot of that debate in Victoria, at least, tended to focus on what was in the best interest of the child. And that's uh, why I thought I would try to focus on a different aspect of this issue and look at well, what did, what's at stake for the parents, if you like. Now, um, if you think about the general principle that I've just articulated, um, obviously it has pretty wide application. And it seem, would seem to follow from this principle that if someone separates identical twins at birth, uh, such that they both grow up not knowing each other, then that would be pro tanto wrong because they are thereby deprived of the opportunity to develop a distinctively valuable bond with each other compared with, for example, one of the members of the twins being spontaneously aborted. That wouldn't be a wrong. And you might even think, and I'm actually going to go on and give you an example of this so-called special bond that some identical twins report, but you might also think, if there's anything to that idea, um, that it, it follows that that kind of deprivation has a different moral significance from one where you separate non-identical twins from each other. Um, and so, you know, again, it's interesting to try to tease out what is of value and what actually do people value about these things. And um, so I'll come to that example of an identical twin in a second. But uh, just so you know how I intend this principle to apply, I am talking about not only obstacles that are intended as blocking such love, um, because you might wonder about the Victorian legislation. It's not as if the legislators were saying, well, we're going to you know, try to make sure that you know, de facto couples can't have this parental love. Um, that a genetic parent could have, but rather uh, that it's a reasonably foreseeable consequence of a certain act or perhaps even a particular sort of omission that, um, that people wouldn't be able to develop these distinctively valuable forms of love. So let me give you an example of uh, some identical twins here from England. And so Peter Schaffer and Tony Schaffer, the playwrights, uh, well, one of many identical twins who talk about having a special bond with each other. And um, I just want to tell you a bit about what they say about each other. Um, and this was actually, um, this is what Peter Schaffer said about um, his twin brother, the playwright Tony Schaffer, when he gave a eulogy for him at his funeral. He said, his private presence in my own life is impossible for me to share. I was Petey to him and he was Tony to me in response. And these slight distortions of our names actually denoted the chafing intimacy of two complex, contrasting, but endlessly corresponding spirits. And though very different in our personal lives and loves, and for very long periods separated by thousands of miles in different homes and countries, we were inextricably part of each other. And I can only tell you that under all that quirky bluffness of his, I felt from him always and always an ever-burning, a never-wavering, loving-kindness that at some moments I'm sure I scarcely deserved. He was always my older brother, although just by five minutes, and always with a firm arm around my shoulder, should I wish it. Um, so, I, in that quote, you might think, well, there's nothing necessarily about the genetic link. So it's kind of interesting um, to, to think about what it is they valued. Um, but I'm really just... I suppose putting it to you as an example of uh, what seems like a plausible claim to make about each other and I don't know how many of you would know other identical twins but you know it's not um, it's not as if this is just a one-off 
Um, but of course, there are plenty of examples of identical twins who don't report feeling this kind of bond, as, as far as I know. So I think the, the point that I want to try and persuade you of here is, to, uh, is the claim that, um, that even if it turns out that such um, bonds are not common, that doesn't seem to undermine the claim that they have a distinctive value. Uh, and if you think, for example, if we did empirical research and looked at how many identical twins report having such bonds, and it turned out that only maybe 20% of them would, we wouldn't think, we wouldn't, I'd suggest, necessarily think that therefore there's something misguided or incoherent or implausible about the Schaffer twins talking about having such a bond. Okay, so... Um, Again, I think it would be interesting to try and analyse that further and compare it with perhaps non-identical twins and see whether or not you know, the Schaffer twins would say, well, our bond is a bit different to their bond, and, and so on. I'm not going to try and pursue that right now, but I'm just putting it up there to say that these claims about distinctively valuable types of love and distinctively valuable sorts of relationships, I don't think that they're assuming or that they need to assume that these are especially common. Um, and likewise, in the case of adoptive parents, so the example I gave you early on in the talk um, of the couple who said they came to love their child um, that they'd adopted, uh, as, and it felt like an achievement to them because it took some time, um, I'm not wanting to suggest that our um, agreeing that that has value, agreeing with them about that, requires that all adopted adoptive parents um, experience that. So I don't think it um, undermines it to say that this is uncommon. Okay, um, so this gets to the question of how we're supposed to individuate these forms of parents or lovers distinct in value from each other. Because obviously if you're going to try to apply uh, some kind of general principle here, we need to figure out, well, so when are people actually being blocked from being able to develop these distinctively valuable sorts of love. So, for example, if it turned out that the kinds of love um, upon further analysis that I have been talking about, or especially uh, perhaps genetic parental love, speaking at a really broad level, and adoptive parental love, if it should, should turn out that they are not distinct in value, um, then you can say, well, look, you know, what is wrong with like, blocking access to IVF because, you know, the claim I mentioned at the beginning, couples can always adopt. If it's love, if it's parental love and parental loving relationships that they're after, then they can adopt as well as have IVF. And so it matters how we individuate these forms of parental love in, in terms of their value. And this is where I think friendship can be instructive, um, thinking about the value of friendship in this context. Um, the kind of thing I mean here, because there's a lot of different things people might mean when they start talking about how to individuate value, I'm talking specifically about uh, people um, thinking that you could substitute one sort of parental love or the value of that parental love for another without loss. That's the kind of thing I'm interested in. Because that seems to be the sort of thing that some sort of critics of broad IVF access have in mind when they say, well, we shouldn't allow unmarried uh, couples access to IVF, or we shouldn't allow same-sex couples access to IVF. They can just adopt a child. Um, okay. 
Now, uh, let me then go into a little bit the intrinsic value of friendship. Uh, and I want to tell you a little bit about the structure of value that I have in mind that I'm going to be drawing on here and coming um, in talking about the value parental love. Uh, so the idea is that, think of friendship. Um, when we think of the value of friendship, uh, I think a lot of people would suggest that it has uh, an intrinsic value. And because of that, the particular sort of value that each person invests in their friendships, um, if you like, gets off the ground. It only gets off the ground because what they are valuing is something that we think of in, independently of any particular relationship as having intrinsic value. So how, are, how might we ground those intrinsic value claims? Well, one might be a sort of Aristotelian way and say, well, you can't flourish without friends. So it's a constitutive part of a humanly flourishing life to have friendships. That's the kind of Aristotelian way of doing it. Um, and there's a lot more to the Aristotelian story than that. But here I think there's a bit of a disanalogy with parental love because while I think friendship is plausibly thought to be a necessary part of any kind of flourishing life, I don't think that loving parental relationships are plausibly seen as an essential um, part of every flourishing life, but I think they are. Um, plausibly seen as essential parts of certain kinds of flourishing lives. Um, to put this differently, I don't think, speaking very generally, that all intrinsically good things need to be part of a life in order for that person to have a flourishing life. Think of aesthetic um, goods. Think of, you know, paintings that you might regard as good in themselves or being able to paint. Um, we don't think, even though you might regard that as intrinsically good, that that has to be part of a, a life in order for the person to flourish. Uh, you know, I'd imagine. Perhaps there are some people who think that. Um, so that's the way I'm thinking about parenthood here. I certainly think that childless couples, whether they choose to be childless or not, can have flourishing lives. But I don't think that um, can have very good lives, and, I don't th and you know, equally good as the lives of people who have children. But um, I don't think that undermines the idea that parental love and, if you like, loving parental relationships um, with children are, part, are you know, intrinsically good. Okay, uh, so what I'm going to be actually getting into um, shortly is this question of what sort of value is it? I've talked about intrinsic value, but let me just try and persuade you a little bit more about um, this in the case of friendship and then move back to parental love. So my claim isn't that a certain form of parental love has value simply due to the parent wanting this love. Okay, the parent, maybe someone who already is a parent and suffers from postnatal depression, doesn't love the child yet, um, or someone who's not yet a parent, they're just a prospective parent, thinking about going the IVF program. So I, I, you know, I put to you that my claim um, that a certain form of parental love has value isn't, uh, you know, isn't justified by or isn't um, you know, based on the idea that it's what someone wants. And so, for example, adoptive parent who doesn't yet love their adopted child, um, it's not about primarily what they want, but uh, nor is it even about just what the individual parent themselves regards as intrinsically valuable, but it's based, it's got this value base that we think of the relationship and the love that's partly constitutive of that relationship as intrinsically good. So I think by analogy, I've had this thing up, up this slide up for a while now. The Slap is well known in Australia. It was a very popular TV series. 
and a best-selling novel about uh, that started off with this story about um, a parent. You know, sometimes in Australia you're at a barbecue. Don't know what you do in England here with that, but you know, you see some kids and they're, they're and they're mucking around, and the parents are being overly disciplinarian towards them. And you feel this impulse to go and intervene, to sort of you know tell a kid off or something, but then you check that impulse because you think, oh, well, parental discretion, parental autonomy has value, obviously within certain limits. Uh, unfortunately, in the slap, what happened is that the, um, the person involved went and slapped the kid of uh, the other parents, and then that set off this whole chain of events that the whole novel and the TV series is based on. So, um, But when you think about that, I don't know if, I'm sure a lot of you would have been in that kind of situation, maybe felt such an impulse. And when you think about why you check yourself, it seems to me that while you check yourself isn't just, well, because the other um, couple whose kid it is um, wants that parental autonomy and wants their parental discretion. I'm, you know, in most cases, I'm sure they would. But it seems to me when you think about while you check yourself more, you think it's appropriate to check that interventional impulse, um, it's that you also regard it as you know, kind of valuable. You think it's valuable that those parents have this kind of zone of discretion up to a point. So you think of it as having a kind of value, whether intrinsic or instrumental remains to be seen. But it seems to me it's not just about that they want to be left alone. Okay, so perhaps a little bit more about the value of friendship. I'm very attracted to this Aristotelian argument um, that he gives in the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 9, Chapter 9, about friends as second selves. I think this is why you can't flourish without friends because you could never have complete self-knowledge without friends because through your friends you come to learn aspects of yourself that you otherwise couldn't learn about. Um, I think it's kind of overstating the point to call it a second self but I think that there's some truth in that idea and again it's not as if you're meant to go out and make friends as a learning experience but uh, as a byproduct of genuine friendships you can learn more about yourself. Now, I think similar sorts of claims can be made about parent-child relationships, and I think in, on you know, both sides of that relationship, there are ways um, in which the parties can obtain self-knowledge that it would at least be very difficult for them to obtain unless they are in that kind of relationship. But um, this is, in a way, a little bit superfluous to my argument. I'm just kind of telling you where I would go if you pressed me on it, um, because I don't really want to presume any such claims. I find them hugely controversial, even I'm attracted to them, and some of you would know the work of David Vallerman on this topic, where he thinks that um, children who are raised by adoptive parents, they can't get those mirrors. They can't learn enough about what it's realistic to aspire to. Um, they can't learn enough about the broader context. Um, so he thinks, I mean, he takes it as far as an, argu an argument for banning things like anonymous sperm donation. Um, so I don't want to, uh, you know, I hope my argument um, here doesn't rest on any such claims like that. But what I'm suggesting here is some sort of value base for thinking that parental love is pro tanto valuable. And then I want to build a more specific layer on top of that, whereby people can direct that value in certain distinctive ways, obviously within certain broader moral limits. Okay, now I hope that makes sense so far in the abstract. Um, one worry that might arise here is that this is just reliant still on an implausibly subjectivist approach to the value of parental love. It's what you make of it. For example, a racist person who said, oh, I could only love a child of my race. You think, 
my um, argument is open to that worry. Um, and I want to try and persuade you that it's not. You might think that, again, to give a bit more substance to this worry, it's my valuing a certain feeling or kind of love that makes it distinctively valuable. So some of you would know the famous uh, speech in Henry V of St Crispin's Day. I've got Kenneth Branagh up there um, in the film giving it, and I've just got this little quote there from it um, where they're in desperate straits uh, trying to work out whether so heavily outnumbered against the French they've got any chance of defeating them in this key battle. Um, and you know, Kenneth Branagh there is saying, um, picked out the quote, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he never so vile. You'll always have this relation of brotherly love and affection um, if you fight in this battle with me. And um, which people did, and they managed to win it in the play. So on that, with those kinds of examples, you might think, well... It's really just because they value it uh, that it gets distinctive value. They value it distinctively. And in particular, when you go down the layers of, or get more specific with the sort of relationships you're talking about, uh, again, it opens the door to a completely subjectivist rendering of this value. So you might think, oh, well, we can talk about the value of friendship. Or we could talk about the value of you know, school friendships. Or you could talk about the value of my friendship with this school friend. And it's, it seems attractive um, or tempting to um, hold that the more specific you get in discussing the value of a relationship, the more subjectivist it would be. Particularly when we're talking about relationships that don't yet exist, uh, such as people who are, um, say they want to go on an IVF program in order to develop this kind of loving relationship with a future child. But again, I think um, when you consider the example of friendship, that can help show that this needn't be the case, uh, that you can have a layer of intrinsic value of friendship generally as being something that's intrinsically good. And only because of that, we then allow, if you like, um, or give credibility to people saying, well, I value this relationship. So it's, it's like you are kind of directing this intrinsic value that um, exists in particular ways. And I think the same can be said about, say, particular examples of um, like loving parent-child relationships, more specifically, and how they draw on the value of generally loving parent-child relationships. Okay. Um, now, um, last time I gave a talk about this sort of thing here, people were telling me about Jerry Cohen's theory of particular value and said oh, I should read it, which I have gone and done. And um, I've found it to be quite useful in thinking about this. Um, and I probably need to say a lot more about it than what I'm going to say now. But I thought what I might just perhaps put in now is the idea that love being distinctively valuable um, means that it's irreplaceable in, in a sense but not in the trivially true sense that it's irreplaceable because of its particular history. Um, and so the adoptive parent, you think back to the example of the adoptive parent I gave early on, where they say, oh, you know, this child comes into the family as a stranger, so to speak, and it took me some time to come to love them, and when I did come to love them, I felt like it was an achievement, and it has this distinctive, they say, special value. You might equally get it with a someone who's a genetic parent who has a disabled child, that um, a severely disabled child. Again, they might, and sometimes do, talk about coming to love the child 
having a special value as a kind of achievement. Um, so thinking about those examples, I'd suggest that the examples of parental love are, or perhaps the value of them is irreplaceable in the sense that another instance of parental love can't be substituted for it without loss. That's the kind of idea that I have in mind. And this is where it starts to get quite tricky because you say, well, without loss to whom? You know, and let me go on and say a little bit more about that. There's a really nice paper in Ethics uh, was published last month by Eric Mathis where he goes into this in even more detail than Cohen does and he has a nice example to separate irreplaceability and intrinsic value where his example is where someone who takes a bunch of flowers from a large field where there's a lot of nice flowers and gives that bunch of flowers as a gift to someone. Um, that that might well be intrinsically valuable, but the bunch is hardly irreplaceable. There's lots of bunches of flowers that one could obtain. So, um, so I'm talking about irreplaceability here, which is a separate notion to intrinsic value. Now, this is where I want to say a bit more about what I mean by without loss. Without loss to whom? Because... You can think of this in quite an abstract way where you're thinking, well, um, and again, think of friendship or parental love, that there's what people value and then there's the fact of the matter. Um, and it might be that there's a separate fact of the matter here, but let me give you an example to suggest that we can't just disregard what you know the testimony of people, of couples, who say they value a relationship in a particular way. Um, and so, for example, as soon as um, anyone starts talking about, let's say, genetic parental love, should there be such a category, as having a distinctive value, people say, well, if you say that, doesn't that devalue adoptive parental love? To which I say, well, no, uh, two values can be distinct from each other but be equal in value. And um, so, for example, you can have two works of art, like you could have the Mona Lisa and the Thinker, and think that they're equal in value aesthetically, um, but that they're distinct, such that if one were destroyed, you wouldn't think you could just replace it in value with the other. So I'm thinking of uh, different sorts of parental love relationships to children in, in that way. Um, but then you have to work out, okay, well, what do we count as evidence for these values? Now, one thing that occurred to me is that when people worry about such talk as devaluing love of adopted children uh, when we say that there's some genetic parental love that has distinctive value and then they will um, report lots of examples of parents who have um, who are both genetic parents and adoptive parents uh, in the same family and they say as Tom Murray does that many rearing parents whether or not they have formally adopted a child report bonds of affection indistinguishable from those described by biological parents. And Susan Gollenbach is a UK researcher who's done some great empirical research on this kind of thing, which I don't have time to go into now. But um, when you think about the way those accounts and reports are used, um, this is someone saying, well, if we're trying to support the claim that these sorts of loves are equal in value, or that they're not even distinct in value, because equal in value can still be... There can be two things that are equal in value but still distinct, as with the Mona Lisa and the Thinker example. So when people try to bolster these claims about, well, actually, they're not distinct in value, 
or they are equal in value, such claims, it seems to me that they are relying on the testimony of parents themselves too. So I guess all I'm really doing is I'm kind of helping myself to the same standards, standards of evidence that others are in this debate about the values of um, different kinds of love. And you kind of, after a while, you start wondering, well, look, you know, what else would we, you know, could we have to go on but looking for something promising and why people report that they value parenting or friendship? I mean, it's, it's kind of a little bit bizarre to even think against um, if someone were to challenge the claim that Tom Murray's making. Um, you know, if, if I were to challenge, um, let's say, parents who said, well, I've got adopted children and I'm a genetic parent as well and I see them as equal in value and you say well you might see them as equal in value but they're not it's kind of I mean you probably wouldn't ever say that to someone but, but to even think it sounds sort of very, rather strange uh, to, so I guess my point is not that what people say completely settles the matter um, but that we can't just disregard it either it's some evidence for thinking of how they relate to each other in value okay um I'm just going to talk for about another 10 minutes and one of the things I wanted to mention um, kind of in passing because it's, it's a big issue uh, which would be fun to discuss if we get time is about the baby mix-up cases. Um, I've given talks about this kind of thing in a lot of places over the years and someone will always bring up the um, cases of babies getting mixed up at birth um, like this book here that Miriam lent me uh, about um, Margaret Wheeler who's... Um, baby, uh, she was the genetic parent of a baby that got handed to um, a different set, a different couple in the hospital in Nottingham in the 1930s and she corresponded with George Bernard Shaw uh, because she couldn't get the other parents to have um, a paternity test or a blood test uh, and so you know the children just were brought up by different parents. Um, and it's a really interesting book because you know George Bernard Shaw talks a lot about um, he's you know very sympathetic to her and she talks a lot about the sense of loss that she she has. You might think that such cases and there are many we hear about them in the media from time to time that they might favour a subjectivist approach to the to perhaps the values of parental love um, insofar as um, well you know had she not known if she were none the wiser. Um, and she didn't know at first, she only suspected. But if parents, babies get mixed up and the, the genetic parents really never even suspect this, you might say, well, then, um, uh, you know, what does it matter that they're actually the child they're raising and the bond they feel with it is not you know, genetic parental love? Um, it's what they make of it. And so you could think, or maybe all my argument leads to, is just um, we've got to just, if you think there's these distinctively valuable sorts of love, adoption, and the true of genetic parenthood, that uh, you sometimes have to brainwash people into thinking they're genetic parents and um, have genetic parental love. Anyway, I mean, I think where I'd go with that problem is to say, well, maybe broad IVF access is necessary to have well-founded genetic parental love. But... Um, at this, in this talk, I'm really focusing on the subjectivist concern. Um, and why I say, perhaps on reflection, the baby mix-up cases tend to support a non-subjectivist approach is that often in those cases, not only in the Margaret Wheeler example I mentioned, that when people do come to find out about it, they do feel a sense of loss. And it seems to me, obviously part of that is a sense of, you know, the hospital's stuffed up, um, they've been deceived, 
But it seems that there's more to it than that. It's the loss of a particular sort of relationship that they often um, express. So, you know, to me, that is um, that tends to suggest that you know the value there isn't just what they feel at the time, but it's maybe what they feel upon reflection. You might think that's still quite subjectivist, um, but they seem to be getting at something beyond just um, you know the feelings that they have at the time. Okay, um, probably three slides to go. What about this idea of the you know, pro-tanto wrongness of governments, let's say, deliberately placing obstacles in the way of opportunities to develop distinctively valuable forms of love? Is it really always wrong, just in this pro-tanto sense, um, that gets off the ground? You know, obviously, if something's pro-tanto wrong is not going to be always wrong, all things considered, but I'm saying, it, is it even pro-tanto wrong in every case that I've been talking about? So here's an example I thought of. I probably shouldn't have you know, put up so many objections and responses to them because that can kill discussion sometimes, but I, I couldn't help putting up this one, which is, you know, what if someone says, oh, okay, look, I, I buy this idea about distinctively valuable sorts of love. Um, I think there's such a thing called slave love, Think of the slavery era in America, and I think that there's something, you might even say especially valuable, about the love between a master and their slave on a plantation in the Deep South. And wouldn't my principle seem to suggest that it's wrong to abolish slavery? Uh, because it's only, it's only the existence of that institution that maintains the possibility of this distinctively valuable sort of love. So you can see how the argument might go. And I would worry if my argument had that implication. Um, so obstacle there can be act or omission, obviously. Um, now, I don't know about that. I've got a couple of um, responses to that kind of um, argument. Um, yeah, one is, well, you wonder about it. Partly it's a question of balancing value. Suppose I were to concede that, well, slave love has distinctive value. Um, but would we really think it justifiable, say, where slavery was not legalised, to create it just so people could develop and experience this new distinctively valuable love? I don't think we would probably say that. But even, even so, even apart from that, you might think, well, actually, is this even love? Slave love. It might feel like love to the master, but um, really, when you think about what love and particular loving relationships, especially what loving, uh, what it means to have a loving relationship. It has a, a, a certain concern for the well-being of the other person involved, where you love them and care for them for their own sake, which wouldn't be present, you'd assume, in this slave love, to the extent it relies on, um, you know, subordination between um, of the slave to the master. So I think I would say, look, this is not even love, so it doesn't even come under the umbrella of, of my principle. Okay. And I guess here I wanted to just remind you that the argument's premised on the idea that it's the loving relationship as something mutual that has intrinsic value, and that's what confers value on the emotion of the love itself and people seeking to pursue it. All right, well, suppose someone agrees that, you know, let's say loving parent-child relationships at a generic level have intrinsic value, um, and they agree that this is not based on an implausibly subjective as value theory, and that this does confer value on the examples, the instances of parental loves in those relationships. If you agree that the values of these parental loves are all equal, are those values, values substitutable after all? 
I already gave you an example before where a genetic parent can feel that the love can say that the love they come to feel for a severely disabled child feels like it has a special value because it's an achievement. There's a famous book and film we need to talk about Kevin um, where the mother involved um, of this guy who was basically a psychopath um, came to, at the end, love him uh, and she certainly felt that that was an achievement and had a special value. So you might think, well, really, are the features that I'm pointing to, are they necessarily linked with the kinds of parental love uh, that I've been linking them to? Well, you know, interestingly here, I think we, would, we should look at the phenomenology involved. And um, I don't think it's enough just to say, well, you know, this love felt like an achievement because it was you know, difficult uh, to, um, to be able to develop. So it suggests that if you compare the love of the adoptive parents, and the particular example that I had the quote from, um, that I didn't read you, <laughs> is an example of intercultural adoption. So you might think that there are particularly... Um, large obstacles to overcome um, there than there might be in other sorts of adoption. And so what I'm really saying in response to this concern is that I think that the nature of the obstacles are going to be reflected in the ways that the people value those sorts of parental love. And so the love in, we need to talk about Kevin, um, as an achievement and distinctively valuable would have a value that's different to the value of let's say, adopting the case of the intercultural adoption that I mentioned at the start. Okay, um, a couple of last slides. Is adoption access really relevant, after all, to arguments about IVF access? You might object that allowing unmarried couples to adopt while barring their access to IVF would actually be thought acceptable. And so we do think these values are substitutable. Likewise, you might wonder whether allowing same-sex couples access to adoption has any bearing on the moral status of prohibitions on them using IVF and other sorts of assisted reproduction. Well, look, I guess I wonder about that, and I'm really just putting these questions to you as rhetorical questions, but let's just suppose unmarried couples were, were told right now that they'd be barred from access to IVF, but would from now on there just be open access to adoption? You know, would we really think that nothing of value had been lost overall? And I'd, I guess that I'd put to you that we would think that something of value has been lost there. And I think the if you consider the one couple, one child policy in China um, and think about whether it's any less bad if couples in China can still adopt a second child. And I guess it's just intuitions here, but my intuition is that um, there's still something wrong with that policy and maybe it's no less bad and I don't know in China whether couples can adopt a second child. Um, that would be interesting to know. So I suppose I'm saying that it's plausible to think um, that something of value is lost in regard to these possibilities when prospective parents are given access to only one of these, these routes to such love. So um, in closing, I just want to ask this question. How does my argument justify IVF access for same-sex couples? Because after all, it's only one member of that, uh, such couples who, has, who becomes a genetic parent, uh, standardly anyway. In The Age, uh, which is the Melbourne newspaper, a couple of weeks ago, there was an interesting story about the huge rise in the number of Victorians using sperm donors to conceive children, because as I said, it was liberalised, um, 
a couple of years ago and the law came into effect in 2010. Last financial year, the sperm of 445 men was available in clinics, up from 192 the year before, and also newly recruited donors have also surged from 38 in 2011 and 12 to 64 last year, and the number of women who use their sperm has increased from 452 in 2008 to 9 uh, to 1,901 last year, leading to 318 pregnancies. So there is, it's interesting, there is this big demand that's now being met in Victoria. Now, um, then, because I pitched my argument right at the start as one argument for broad access to IVF, you might think that it doesn't really work for certain cases, like the same-sex couples. Well, again, I think it's useful to look at the empirical research, and what you find when you do that is that there's all kinds of negotiations that happen between, uh, for example, lesbian couples about who's going to be inseminated and carry the baby. So, for example, Gemma Mead, um, and also Vicky Guglielmo, who's <coughs> pictured there, said, these children are so loved and wanted, the couple would like to have a second child and they're going through the same emotional process and this time it's Mrs Guglielmo's um, turn. So often when you read the accounts of same-sex couples on IVF, they will talk about not only sharing you know, benefits and burdens of pregnancy, but also sharing what some of them regard as a benefit of having that sort of genetic link with the child. Um, which is not to say that it's any better than someone who doesn't have that genetic link, but it's something that they attach value to <coughs> and that they alternate when they do that with successive children. So I think in the end this argument can um, justify IVF access not only for unmarried couples, which I guess is something that's already been done uh, around the world, but also for same-sex couples. You might think, this is something I'm going to say in closing with my references up there, you might think that this is just an argument for saying, and I hate to invoke this quote, but let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, it's not exactly that, because what I'm really saying is let a thousand genuine flowers bloom. Because you've got to remember, I'm talking about genuine kinds of love, not slave love, and all the other examples of what people might think of as themselves as love, but when you analyse, they're not actually love. Um, so it is sort of let a thousand genuine flowers bloom, so it is pretty open. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.